1: Don't you see? It's so simple. Step one, we Google the biggest flops on Broadway. Step two, we find the crazy stories behind them. Step three, we see how they lose millions of dollars. Millions? Broadway isn't cheap, a lot of fancy people want to be producers. Step four, find out why the show won't go on. Step five, end this episode and head to Times Square.
2: Times Square, that'll never work. Only Broadway successes are in Times Square. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith.
1: Oh, I totally won. You want to the be best two out of three? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. That's my vampire <laughs> impersonation. You guys and gals and whoever else is listening <laughs> have stumbled upon Theater Geeks Anonymous. The Vampire, vampire Duel.
2: That's a good title. Do you like that? I like it. I do too. Good idea. I just made it up. (laughs) I like it.
1: This is fun. I love Halloween. Ebony and I love... Oh, wait. You don't love Halloween. I I love Halloween. You just like this time of year. I love Halloween, but mostly (laughs) it's because you get a lot of free candy. (laughs) Now, as an adult, I have not found it free, but it's definitely discounted on November 1st, which I
2: love. Yeah. (laughs) That that I dig too. Too much candy corn, stuff
1: like that. Oh. It was never the candy corn that I loved. It was always those little mallow pumpkins. Oh, it's all still sugar, but yeah. I love them.
2: Just in different forms,
1: totally. <laughs> <laughs> you get jelly beans in Easter time. You get <laughs> it's like you just name them off. Mm-hmm. Each holiday
2: has its own sugar factory. <laughs> are all really amazing really yummy really good as an adult i'm starting to like the reese's um peanut butter cup that's in the shape of like a pumpkin because it's like yeah. full of the peanut butter yes yeah, really oh man i'm a big fan of peanut
1: butter and chocolate put together <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh well, there's a reason for bringing that up <laughs> Is because we are in Halloween season. So these next two episodes, this one and the next one, which I'm not going to reveal yet. Actually, we have
2: three this month. Oh, we do. We have three this month. But what we're doing on this particular episode is something we've not done before. So Pamela called it a duel because it'll be (laughs) her and I both giving separate stories of vampire flops. We're super excited about it. I wish that we had a third person to do this duel
1: with because there were three all around the same time. But the ones that we have narrowed it down to are Lestat and
2: Dance of the Vampires. I'm so excited about it. We could have gotten Robbie for this, but, like, um, we didn't think about it we before. Didn't. And I didn't think about it until just this moment. Chomping at the bit oh, to be on this, this Sorry, podcast. Sorry, Robbie. I, I didn't know either until Monday. He's chomping at the bit. I had no idea. Well. one day, He'll be on one day. Yeah, And totally. you guys will have lots of fun with it. Maybe we'll have,
1: like guest appearances and stuff (laughs) we already had with my sister (laughs) oh that's true that's very true she was a
2: good guest appearance
1: She didn't say anything. It was like we took over. She said, hi. Hi, guys. And that and, was it. <laughs> so you can go back and listen to that episode, too, if you oh, like. Oh, oh. You know what? I just forgot. What? We did that whole, like, slap thing in the beginning, and we oh, didn't explain knows. why. Oh,
2: Crap it. Okay, so we didn't know who was going to start, so yep. Pamela was like, let's do rock, paper, scissors. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what happened, and I lost, so she's going first. She picked scissor, and I stayed with
1: the rock. <laughs> Which and then I everything. asked if she wanted to do two out of three. But she was like, no. So no. here we go. All right. Uh, 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 <laughs> so Lestat is a Broadway musical inspired by Anne Rice's The Vampire Chronicles, which includes so many books. And I didn't realize there were this many books until I, do- I was doing the research mm-hmm. for this. It includes Interview with a Vampire, which is what the movie was based on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vampire Lestat was the second book, Queen of the Damned, and nine others after that.
2: But, okay, Queen of the Damned, mm-hmm. uh, that was like the last movie Aaliyah did yes. before she
1: died. Yes. Yeah. It was also the last movie they made of this Vampire Chronicles. Okay. Uh, did they do all, uh, all
2: nine? Or is no. there only, there's only like two or three.
1: Oh, no. I think they only, I think they. No, actually, aren't there just the two? Interview with a Vampire and Queen of the Damned? I always thought Lestat was actually maybe a Another movie. movie? I don't I don't think it is, honestly. Okay. I think we might think it is just because it was a a show. <laughs> but I don't think it was a movie. If I'm wrong, you got to let me know. Yeah, let us know on and Facebook Twitter. And if you don't let Twitter me know, then email. you don't get to complain. <laughs>
2: hostile today guys
1: i know i am i'm taking i i, I don't know what it is i had like my hostel pill <laughs> my take no prisoners pill <laughs> so the score is written by elton john and bernie taupin with the book by linda wolverton to go into detail on these guys i mean you all know elton john yeah. of course if you don't i, I know right <laughs> then maybe you were born in the last 10 years <laughs> but still but still yeah uh, he's the famous musical icon who has been creating music for 50 years and has sold more than 300 billion albums what? to date. Isn't 300 that billion? 300 billion albums. Seriously. So like if oh, each album was I'm a making? dollar I
2: didn't realize it was 300 billion I didn't
1: either until I was doing the research and I'm like okay so like on average if an album costs like 12.99 That money, get that amount of money. I can't even think about it right now. It's just wow, yeah. So, Bernie Taupin is actually best known for his long term collaboration with Elton John, and in fact. This is so cool. The way they met was in 1967. Taupin answered an advertisement placed in the UK music paper New Musical Express by Liberty Records, uh, a company that was seeking new songwriters. Around the same time, Elton John responded to the same advertisement, and the duo were brought together, collaborating on many projects since, including but not limited to, oh, I don't know, Rocket Man. Crocodile oh. Rock, Tiny Dancer, Candle in the Wind, Benny and the Jets, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Right? Wow. I know. But this was the first musical they collaborated on. Um, it did, It said legit musical, but I'm not sure what they meant by that. Cause what,
2: it, because what? Is there like any well, other? Like Elton
1: John wrote. Lion King and Aida, right? But I mean,
2: but, they didn't do that together, though. No, this Lesat was the right. only musical. But they said the, legit musical, yeah, and I they met no together. Sense. So I, I wonder though, because like one of those you mentioned, mm-hmm. it, was it sort of like how um, Bohemian Rhapsody is sort of like, even though it's like one song, mm-hmm. it's like seen as what? What do they call like those one song kind of like operatic? Oh, like it's, you know uh, what I mean? uh Uh-huh. I do. I can't think of the terminology right now. So I wonder, one of those, I can't remember which song it is now, but one of those songs you mentioned, I think they, is thought of in the same way. Okay. So I think like, I wonder if that's why they said legit. Maybe. Legitimate, Yeah. But I don't it's know actually, But it was obviously it's one song. So it's not like a musical, right. but like it's still like an
1: anthology. Is yeah, that what you're sort trying... of? OK, sort of like that. I know what you mean. I just, yeah. you know, whatever.
2: <laughs> I don't I just don't know what is. I forgot yeah. what the actual term maybe, is.
1: Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it could just be the terminology this person used yeah. on Wikipedia and they just didn't know what they were talking about. Could be that I thought it was strange. So I left it out. But then I was like, maybe I shouldn't leave it out. I don't just know. Just in case. Just in case. Um, Linda Wolverton is the third uh, in this trilogy. So Elton John and Bernie wrote the score and lyrics and then the book was written by Linda Wolverton. She has written screenplays and books of several acclaimed Disney films and stage musicals and she became the first woman to write an animated feature for Disney by writing the screenplay of Beauty and the Beast. She also wrote the screenplay of The Lion King and adapted her own Beauty and the Beast screenplay into the book of the Broadway adaptation of the film.
2: Okay,
1: Which I thought that was really cool. She was the first woman. Uh, oh, and she also received the Tony Award nomination for Beauty and the Beast. Mm. So the synopsis of the show was really hard to pin down. Yeah. <laughs> I sent you a text last week yeah. when I was doing the research for this, and I was like, nobody knows what this show is about. Yeah. Because every synopsis I found... Was first of all incredibly convoluted and really difficult to understand, uh, but also contradictory of other synopsi, synopsis. I don't know how to say that plural.
2: Um, but it makes sense if yes. you have nine books you're trying to piece together. Yes, that's way too well, much source material. Well, and honestly, I
1: wonder, like, if at some point they were just like. Uh, just stop after book five we'll just yeah. edit there you know what I mean like who even knows but uh, so what I did was I went onto YouTube and I discovered that they had the full show from the San Francisco uh, sh- uh, opening it? I did
2: I love that
1: But then I read that that show is vastly different Different from from what they put on Broadway. So I tried to then piece together a synopsis with the San Francisco, but it was was impossible. And I'll tell you why it's impossible. There is so much going on Mm. that it is impossible to figure out a through line or a story arc. Like, it's just impossible. So this is the synopsis that I was able to come up with. But who even knows if it's going to be understandable. We'll see.
2: If if anyone actually saw it and you are able to give us some sort of. Can you please write me a synopsis? Yeah. And put
0: and it, we'll yeah. put it on the Send rewrite section oh, of the next totally. intermission. Episode. I'll read
1: it with flourish. <laughs> and I'll put your name on the end. I'll say by so and so. Yeah, It'll be amazing. It'll be like story time with Pamela. <laughs> So at first I did go once I found like all of these synopses that I could not figure out. I went on to um, where you can buy the rights to the show. Uh-huh. I can't re- I can't remember who has the rights right now. Okay. It wasn't There's one a... that I remembered. Oh, okay. so it wasn't like, like Samuel a... French or MTI. It was That's yeah,
2: what I was say MTI. But... No,
1: huh? So, and this is what they say uh, is the synopsis. Lestat is the story of a man who escapes the tyranny of his oppressive family only to have his life taken from him by the vampire Magnus. Now a vampire himself, Lestat is thrust into the seductive and sensual world of immortality. However, Lestat struggles to reconcile his innate sense of good and his primal need to exist. That is the bare bones. Okay. Here's a little more. Uh-oh. The story follows Lestat de Lioncourt a nobleman who's unappreciated by his family and makes his entrance after killing eight wolves single-handedly. His father and brother scorn him, and he finally lets his dying mother convince him to go to Paris. Upon his arrival, he meets an old friend named Nicholas, steps out to get some air one night, and gets himself turned into a vampire. It sounds like a comedy. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, he reveals to his mother what he has become and to his shock. She asks him to turn her to save her from her illness. He agrees, and the two of them make their way to Paris again, where they encounter the Théâtre du Vampire. The Theater of Vampires. (laughs) That's in French. That was terrible (laughs) French, but... (laughs) Uh, Lestat turns Nicholas, who refuses to drink and seal the transformation, and therefore falls ill and begins to die. So Lestat and his mother, Gabrielle, start off to find one vampire who might be able to cure him, Marius. Lestat finds him, but ultimately Gabrielle deserts him when he refuses to abandon Nicholas, who ends up dying anyway. Lestat decides to depart for the new world to reinvent himself, and ends up in New Orleans. There, he meets Louis and Claudia, two people who are about to teach him the meaning of the word "unpredictable." I'm sorry, it really does sound like a sitcom.
2: Yeah, no, you're right. So that's the
1: synopsis. That's all. I, it was so, and this and was. I wish not that not I had a musical written musical
2: comedy. Right? No. Okay. No,
1: it is a gothic, uh, a gothic musical. That is, you know, as dark as dark can be or that's what they're trying to get across. But honestly, in watching it, too. Well, and you know what? Here's the thing, too. Mm -hmm. Like, even in the darkest of musicals, there's always going to be some humor because that's real life. There is humor in in darkness. Right. uh, In real life. Um, And so you will obviously see that because the stage is a mirror of our lives. But in this, it's like they tried to be so heavy all the time. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, they almost did the exact opposite and they made it a comedy. So it is Mm -hmm. really interesting that, that it didn't read that way when I was just reading it back in, when I was on the computer, but reading it out loud, it was like, this sounds like here's a new comedy. (laughs) Oh, what's going to happen now? Like that. It's just a very strange anyway, but that also could be the way I was reading it. (laughs) (laughs) So the productions that uh, occurred were a uh, musical reading that they had in November of 2003 with the title The Vampire Lestat. The reading cast featured James Barber as Lestat. The show then, after that, premiered at the Curran Theater in San Francisco on December 17, 2005 and closed on January 29, 2006, where, fun little fact, it became the highest-earning pre-Broadway play in San Francisco history. Wow! So you're going, Pamela, why in the world are you doing Lestat on Theater Geeks Anonymous if it was such this amazing success in San Francisco? Well... I'll tell (laughs) you, because the musical then opened on Broadway at the Palace Theater on March 25th, 2006, and closed on May 28th, 2006, after 33 previews and 39 performances. That's why. Yeah. And I'll go into some detail here about why. But I do want to um, give props to some of the people that were involved with this show. The musical was directed by Robert Jess Roth with musical staging by Matt West. Scenic design was Derek McClain. Costume design, Susan Hilferty, uh, who's pretty big in the biz. Yeah. Uh, especially with, like, the period pieces. Yeah. Uh, the choreographer uh, uh, was Jonathan Butterell. Or Botrell. It's, it's spelled Butterell, so I'm going to say it like that. Okay. Uh, and he was brought in after San Francisco and added to the Broadway creative team to, quote, give his perspective on the staging, unquote. Uh, Elton John explained that he had written two new songs for the Broadway production, including Right Before My Eyes and My Beautiful Boy for Lestat's mother, Carolee Carmelo. <sighs> She's a favorite of ours. She, she really is. is. She's really. just amazing. <laughs> I'm sure the flub wasn't her fault.
2: <laughs> it never is. Never she's is. She's usually the best part of the whole show.
1: <laughs> and she was really good. I mean, if you guys get an opportunity, don't do it now because you're listening to us. But watch on YouTube because she, it's not the greatest quality of visual, yeah. but the sound. I mean, she's just amazing in everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh Elton John also noted that the storyline had certainly changed in
2: Lestat. <laughs> That's nice. It's no, it's a jo- like it's it's actually a joke though. It's but, I mean because nobody knows, knew what it was about to start with. It's true. But, I mean,
1: here's the thing. This is, and this is what kills me. And I'll, I'll go into detail about this. But I keep getting stopped. Because you had this show that was recognized as this amazing, the highest earning pre-Broadway show in San Francisco history. Crazy. So what did you do? You changed it up yeah, and I, then brought it to Broadway. And yeah. I don't understand that rationale. Anyway. It's
2: It'll be a common theme on this episode. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, the Curtain Up uh, reviewer noted, quote, press reports from out of town about songs, characters, scenes, and performers being dropped and or replaced indicated that there was plenty of work to do on this particular incarnation, end quote. The pre-Broadway version of Lestat was very different from the Broadway version, and even though it was the highest earning pre-Broadway play in San Francisco history, beating out Wicked and Cats. No, no! I'm not kidding. Just in San Francisco, but come on. Wow. Uh, the company had drastically revised the play. The San Francisco version had far more elaborate stage effects and production values, and included projected images illustrating the main character Lestat's story. It was actually kind of cool. So basically, like Lestat came in and sang his little introduction. This is me. I'm I'm Lestat. Blah mm-hmm. blah blah. And then th- this was modern time. And then he went around to the backside of a desk and sat down, opened up a laptop, and started writing out his me- typing out his memoirs. But on the back of the house. You could watch him typing. Exactly. You okay. saw a superimposition of all of the text that was coming mm-hmm. across. So it was it was a kind of a neat little a thing. Um, the Broadway version of Lestat was more interpretive and used fewer projections. It also cut quite a few plot elements. Songs were changed and whole characters were cut completely. So I mentioned Queen of the Damned earlier. The King and Queen, and I can't remember their names right now, and I didn't write it down, uh, they were a pretty large part of the original show, but in Broadway, they were cut completely. So essentially, Queen of the Damned, the book was just completely taken out of the whole show. That whole... But they were not at a loss for stories to tell. They just couldn't quite decide which story was the most important.
2: If you're going to... If you're going to call a show Lestat, why is his story not the most important? Yeah.
1: The San Francisco Company remained intact uh, for Broadway with some additions. Uh, It featured Hugh Pinero as the title character. I love him. And, of course, Carolee Carmelo <laughs> playing the mother, <laughs> Gabrielle. Drew Sarich played Armand. Jim Stanick as Louis. Roderick Hill as Nicholas. Michael Janais as Marius. Allison Fisher as Claudia. Lestat's cast of 21 featured... I'm just going to name them all, because they're just all really talented people, <laughs> according to all the reviews. Uh, the cast of 21 featured... Rachel Koloff, Nikki Reda- Renee Daniels, who I know, <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Delger, Colleen Fitzpatrick, Sean McLaughlin, who I've done a show with, Patrick Mellon, who I've done a show with, Chris Peluso, Dominique Plissant, uh, Megan Ranking, Sarah Soli, Amy Sparrow, who I've done a show with, Will Swenson, <laughs> Steve Wilson, and Tamara Wilson. Will Swenson was in Lestat. Yes. <laughs> he, I believe he was actually the understudy for Lestat, uh, but was also in the ensemble. I know. I know. In an interview pre-Broadway, Elton John told Playbill's Harry Hahn, the changes to the script and score are, quote, radical. He mentions, this is still uh, Elton John speaking, like with Billy Elliot, I wrote an extra song quite late in the day and we left some songs out and that's par for the course when you're a composer for a musical. You kind of have to leave your ego at the door and see some songs you really like bite the dust and you have to write some other ones because in every show the story changes. But is that really true once it's up and running? I mean, that's the hard part to kind of rationalize here. Well, yes, there's always going to be changes.
2: It is true because like every show that we've talked about, you do the, you know, you do the initial run. Mm-hmm. You do the tryout. Yeah. And then you, you see make if it changes. works. And if it do doesn't work. Do another tryout. <laughs> yeah. You make changes. Right. Do another tryout. Like, that's the that's the good path. That's right. the best path. Yes. It doesn't always mean you'll have a success. No. It just at least means, like, you worked on it as hard as you could. But in this case, I mean, he it uses was,
1: the word radical. The changes that he made to the script and score were radical. But, so the like, front.
2: I feel like in this case, yeah. it doesn't Makes sense right to have done these radical changes when when it was in san francisco and they it was the highest good, re- right yeah when they had such a good response it makes sense when we've talked about other shows where yeah. it didn't do well
1: i didn't uh, that that interview was really interesting to read and i didn't include everything but part of the interview he did uh, he was asked um what his perception of Dance of the Vampires and Dracula was, which mm-hmm. preceded this show, yeah. and were both obvious failures, right? Uh, and he was asked what his thoughts were on those two shows, and mm-hmm. it was his—he was very vague and kind of pushed the question away because he, I, I, it, I inferred that he was like he was feeling like maybe this was a huge risk as far as the concept was concerned Mm -hmm. because these other two shows had had such a failure, but he was trying so hard to do something new Mm -hmm. to make it work. So, I mean, it is, it is sad that this didn't work. Because of that. And so I know that he was feeling the pressure. So that yeah. could very well be why they made so many changes too. Mm-hmm. He was feeling the pressure of these other two Broadway shows that right. didn't succeed. And now he's bringing another vampire show. So what's he going to do differently? Right. Um, is the plot different since San Francisco? This was one of the questions that he was asked in this interview. And his answer was, the storyline was completely changed in Lestat. We're just trying to sharpen it up. Uh, And make it better. And I think that's the way a musical has to keep going. Otherwise, you don't keep it fresh and it becomes stale. But when you're actually working on a musical and it hasn't actually opened yet, you want it to get as good as it can be. You're working on it right up to the 11th hour. And that's what we'll be doing with Lestat. He was also, I believe at this time, if what I'm inferring from this interview uh, is uh, if that is correct as well. He was at this time working on Billy Elliot or had just finished Billy Elliot as well, which was a pretty big success yeah. on Broadway. Yeah. It's such a good show. Um, so I think that... Uh, intermixed in with this interview about Lestat was also an interview about Billy Elliot. Okay. So a lot of it, I think he was trying, he was playing one show against the other and he Mm -hmm. would say things like, well, like with Billy Elliot, we had to do this, this, and this.
2: They're two completely different stories. Completely
1: different stories and completely different types of show. Right. And he mentioned that in the interview as well. You know, something like, um, you know, Billy Elliot was very political and it was Mm -hmm. also based on a, a true yeah. time. You know, and where, one
2: source which
1: was right, the movie. The movie. Yeah. And exactly. So and in this case, because vampires aren't real right. spoiler. Um, <laughs> you know, you you're, you are working off of a reference, but it's a very expansive reference. Right.
2: And when you have nine books
1: as your source mm-hmm.
2: materials.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why he would have trouble, but so some of the reviews were not very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all available to read online, and I'll let you guys do most of the work on that. But I will you know, mention some of them, and not, not in their full context, but in what mm. some of them mentioned. New York Times called it a musical sleeping pill. Mm. Variety said there was too much plot to wade through. Uh, New York Post called it bloody awful. Newsday's review was headlined, Undead Lestat Sucked of Life. So none of these people liked it. It was really universally panned. Nobody liked it. It's not even mixed. It's not mixed at all. Um, My own opinion is that he just had too much to reference in order to write the show. You and I mentioned that earlier. You wouldn't even attempt to write a three-hour musical based on the entire Harry Potter series of books. (laughs) But that's kind of exactly what they did with Lestat. It makes it very difficult to edit and to pare down to just one thread that should be your story. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where they made their big mistake. Um, one of the big mistakes. Well, really, honestly, that might be it. Mm-hmm. That might be the biggest mistake. Mm-hmm. It's just too much, and not it's just it's it was so difficult in just doing the research because it was so hard to understand. Yeah, so I can't imagine sitting in the audience and watching it on right. stage and just completely being lost. The reviews did celebrate the talent in the cast, yeah. but they just couldn't get behind the story being told. And they were also in one of the larger Broadway houses. It's the Palace Theater, which has, mm-hmm, it has a seating capacity of 1743. That one, the, one is yeah.
2: notorious for being
1: difficult. And that's true, too. Yeah. I looked up the seating capacities of all of the Broadway venues and the Palace Theater at 1,743 seats Mm -hmm. was actually, like, in the top five of houses. You know, they... I think the top one had, like, 1,900 and something.
2: Which which one was that? Was that the lyric?
1: The Gershwin is the biggest house with
2: 1933. Okay. What's after
1: that? Does it say? Uh, Uh-uh. I'd have to... I can't remember what rabbit hole I fell down to find the list. Okay. Um, Let me look up the lyric, though, because...
2: Because I know right now the lyric, I, I really think it was two theaters put together, and it's really difficult to fill. They're going to put Harry Potter in it, and they're doing major renovations on it so that it can house Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, obviously, Harry Potter will solve its problems keeping something. Yeah. Harry it'll be fine with Harry Potter.
1: Okay, so actually this is funny. It says that the Lyric Theater has approximately 1938, which is 5 seats more than the Gershwin. Yeah. So I'm not sure why the Gershwin is listed as the most Maybe because this says approximately, so it could yeah. be like, depending on where the stage is or where the proscenium right. is, they've, they lose a couple seats.
2: They're going to take out a bunch of seats for Harry Potter.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But anywho, so there's Lestat. Yeah. But I definitely, I mean, if, you, if you're interested watching that whole show on YouTube, I mean, it's definitely available. And support my friends who were in it. Yeah. <laughs> because they didn't. Asked to be in a flop.
2: <laughs> right. Oh, and also, you know, it sounds like the San Francisco was better than the New York anyway. Absolutely. So.
1: And that's the one you'll be seeing. Yeah. Also, though, there was a little piece of trivia that I brought up, but I just didn't write down. Um, they did do a cast recording directly after the show that's closed. Right. But I discovered that Elton John has refused to release it <laughs> because the critics panned it.
0: Isn't that wow. awful?
1: Mm. Uh, I want him to release it. Yeah, I think um, I did read somewhere that you can listen to some of the songs from the soundboard. You guys are gonna have to. No, it's. Oh, I mean, the, from the cast recording, right? Exactly. But the whole thing hasn't been released. Okay. Or maybe it I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Mm. This to do the research on this show was real weird. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it was like, like so it. different than than all of the other shows I've ever done. Yeah. So it was just so strange. <laughs> And that's Aww.
2: that. <laughs> Poor Listat. All right. That was my show. Now here's (laughs) Ebony's for our duel. So in this one, I mean, this one was just referred to because you said Dance of the Vampires Mm -hmm. uh, was something that Elton John looked at and was like trying not to do. But (laughs) oh, poor buddy.
1: (laughs) Try not to make the same mistake. Yeah,
2: it happens. So. All right, so here's Dance of the Vampires. Okay, Dance of the Vampires uh, was based on the Roman Polanski film from 1967. It was entitled The Fearless Vampire Killers or Pardon Me, Your Teeth Are in My Neck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's charming. (laughs) Pardon me, your teeth are in my neck. Your
2: teeth are in my neck. (laughs) The film was co-written by Roman Polanski and Gerard Brock. The movie starred Roman Polanski with his future wife, Sharon Tate.
1: Wow. Which, guys... Oh, I remember... Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew about that. But, right. like, I, I remember seeing a, a documentary about... Well, maybe not a documentary. I remember reading something about this movie being the way they actually met each other.
2: Yeah. I... I I wished I could... I kept, like... When I was doing the research, I was like trying to find like interviews or like mm-hmm. something, and it was difficult to find that. But you can find like clips of the movie all over the place. Okay, um, YouTube. You can rent it for two ninety nine. Wow, well, that's a deal. I didn't do that because <laughs> I'm going to be real honest with you guys. This stuff gives me nightmares. Oh yeah,
1: you don't want. Do I can't. I can't have
2: that. it soak in that deep. I just watched a few clips just to kind of get a feel, and it is a comedy. So it's supposed to be like this dark, uh, campy, okay. like uh, comedic, like yeah. vampire movie,
1: like a pantomime, as like an old, like a like an old timey, like vaudeville kind of it, where you have the bad guy and the good girl and the hero and yeah. <laughs> it,
2: well, if I feel like the characters were a little more, uh, I don't. I don't know that they were as sharply defined, okay. as that. Um, but it was just like over dramatic. Is yeah, that, okay. And, it, and it, it's yeah, it's just like it has a, a feel of uh, silliness to it. Okay, um, <laughs> camp. Yeah, Love it. camp. Campfires. <laughs> Campfires. <laughs> <highers. laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> so uh, here's a bit of a synopsis about the movie, and. Excuse me if I get these names wrong. This was a German film. <laughs> so I'm trying. I'm mm-hmm. trying. Professor mm, Abrancius okay. and his assistant Alfred arrive to a small distant village in Eastern Europe in a hope to prove their theory that vampires really exist. Alfred falls in love with a beautiful girl, Sarah, who gets attacked and kidnapped by a vampire named Count von Kroloch. He decides to rescue her out of the Count's castle, whatever it takes. The Professor and Alfred are received with open arms by a hospitable Count von Krolach, who offers them to stay there as long as they like, but doesn't mention a ball... Uh, is happening the next night (laughs) where his friends come to drink their blood and make new vampires out of them. Well, so this scene is actually, I I did watch this on YouTube and it's (laughs) hilarious because like they're dancing and it's like the three of them can't tell these people are dead, which like, if you're watching it, you can definitely tell they're (laughs) dead because they're all like very pale faced and stuff. And they're just like having fun and they're just like dancing. And (laughs) then all of a sudden, uh, I, I, I don't even know how they got to it, but all of a sudden at the end of like this dance scene, very period style dancing. This was early sixties, 1967, but it's, it's, uh, the time period that it's based in is like Listat time, period, Like big dresses and stuff like
1: that. (laughs) Like the 1800s. Yeah. yeah.
2: So they, they have that sort of like ball type dancing. (laughs) And then all of a sudden they all turn to like this one mirror at the end of the dance. And you see, it's just like Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, the dude who's playing the professor, and everyone else is invisible because they're all dead. They're all
1: vampires. Yeah.
2: And then they all three look at each other like, oh, crap. It's, it's super cute. Like, if you can just, yeah. if you can find that on YouTube super easy. Oh, that my was gosh. Like really I want cute. to. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fun. Um, uh, okay. So then drink their blood. Uh, they spend the next day in attempts to find and kill Crowlock, but don't succeed. They lose their luggage with weapons like garlic, a crucifix, and <laughs> uh, and Alfred. Alfred does finally find Sarah, who is still human. She does not want to escape right now, losing the unique possibility to wear a great dress for a real ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. I know, that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, so the three of them stay another night. Krolock's son Herbert falls in love with Alfred and tries to bite him. Alfred uh, is able to get himself and the professor in a tower to a tower to try to like hide. Mm-hmm. The count meets them there to inform them that they will become vampires tonight and will spend their endless lives in the castle.
1: Oh, professor, is it a nice castle? Do they have their own bedrooms?
2: I mean, it looked pretty baller, but also (laughs) like also sort of decrepit at the same time because like they're dead. Right. And so it's it's like like decrepit chic. Decrepit chic. (laughs) Yes. A la Rocky Horror. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Right. Yep. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Professor Abroncius. Abroncius. (laughs) Abroncius. Abroncius. I don't know. It's supposed to be uh, the Count's (laughs) companion and Alfred... Is supposed to be Herbert's boyfriend. They escape from the tower and go to the ball to rescue Sarah. This time they succeed and finally leave the castle. What they don't know is Sarah has already become a vampire and she (laughs) bites both of them. Wow. So now everybody's a vampire. (laughs) It is. And hilarity ensues. Hilarity ensues. Um, There's a couple of bits missing from this synopsis though. So like the The way that they meet Sarah is um, so when they go to this little town, they end up staying in this inn, and the innkeeper is Sarah's father, and okay. he has two daughters, so he has Sarah and another daughter, and they're both like oh, all all of them are aware that like these vampires live nearby, and mm-hmm. this little town like near this castle uh, tries really hard to like make sure they have everything they need to sort of ward off the vampires, yeah. so they all have crosses, yeah. garlic. Like, everything they need (laughs) to try to ward the vampires Mm -hmm. off from, like, coming to try to bite them. And because Sarah is so beautiful, her father, the innkeeper, is, like, extremely protective of her. Sure. So, so that. So that's how they end up meeting her in the first place is they are staying at this inn mm-hmm. um, because they are trying to prove that they're vampires. <laughs> so the synopsis didn't tell that part, but I wanted to let you know. Okay, so, so uh, this is from Wikipedia. When the film was first released in the U.S., MGM wanted to market it as a farce. <laughs> MGM's uh, head editor, Margaret Booth, and the head of theatrical post-production, Merle Chamberlain cut 12 minutes worth of material along with adding the animated prologue, among other changes. I did watch the animated prologue. It's real campy and cute. (laughs) Like, it's very 1967 campy and cute. Uh, The character Professor Abroncius was redubbed to give him a goofy, cartoony voice that would suit the kooky tone of the film. (laughs) This version was slightly retitled as the fearless vampire killers or pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck. (laughs) This was the version uh, that was most commonly seen in the U.S. until it vanished from circulation in the 70s. In the early 1980s, MGM unearthed a print of Roman Polanski's original cut and sent it to various rep and revival houses for screenings. The version was garnered new had garnered new interest uh, and is reevaluated. Wait. This version has garnered new interest and reevaluated opinions from critics and fans of Polanski's work, who has previously bashed the film and it's mutilated U.S. cut. So like he, you know, it's like a director's cut. Yeah. Like that's, you know, there's a way he wrote it. Yeah. So he there was a way he intended it to be seen. And like it was sometimes they do get butchered. Like I get that. So I understand his uh, frustration. Yeah. Since then the original version of the film is the one more commonly available today and has been released on VHS, laserdisc and DVD and occasionally airs on TCM. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> but again, it's on YouTube for 2.99, so nice. if you'd like to watch it, you can. Done. All right, pardon me. Can I make a musical? <laughs> So here, you the- and I
1: are getting super cutesy with our <laughs> titles, right? <laughs> Especially you. I love this. All right. So far, you're winning the duel. We'll see if it lasts.
2: We'll see if it lasts because this is a lot. Is it? This one. This is. This one was a lot. Um, okay. So this musical has actually a very long. Uh, not a not so much a long road to Broadway, but, like, a very long history in um, theater. And so it's... uh, I'm not going to go into just, like, all of it. I'm just going to, like, touch on a few bits here and there. All right, so the creative team for the Broadway production specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, The music was by Jim Steinman, um, who was known for writing... a. Few of Meatloaf songs. Oh, that's fun. Um, and is like very well respected also in the New York City community because he used to uh, work with Joe Papp. Oh. Yeah. Um, the lyrics were written by Michael Coons and Jim Steinman. Michael Coons wrote uh, one of the ones that I did, yeah. right? Yeah. Which one? <laughs> I can't remember. I can't either. Keep talking. I'll look it up. So Yeah. Or somebody is screaming it at us. <laughs> Uh, and then the book was written by Michael Coons, Jim Steinman, and David Ives. So in terms of writing the book, they actually adapted it, obviously, from the, uh, the screenplay that was written by uh, Roman Polanski. Oh, my
1: gosh. What? Rebecca.
2: Yes! <laughs> yes! Here's the thing is like you know when I was looking this up because like I said it has a very like long history mm-hmm. in theater it's not just New York theater I mean this thing is still done all over Europe like really? Europe loves the crap out of this thing. awesome um, well it's probably because they kept the camp yeah they kept the camp um, they you know it's well we'll get into it but okay. it definitely has a similar problem that like in its initial play in Vienna, mm-hmm. it was like super well liked. Yeah. And then they made changes when they brought it to Broadway and you then people and were like, We also, don't get if this. It's
1: done in a different language originally, yeah. sometimes that translation can have some effect too. Right. Awesome.
2: So uh, yeah, so that's why because where did Rebecca started in Vienna. Germany oh, or Vienna? No, in Vienna, mm-hmm. um, right? And so and so, uh, I think that's the tie there.
1: Well, all of their shows did. Remember, they did like Elizabeth okay. and Mozart.
2: Yes, that's um, right. We talked about, yeah. and then was, there was a Marie Antoinette one uh-huh. too, right? Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, all of those Were started in
1: Vienna. in Vienna. Yeah.
2: All right, so um. Dance of the Vampires, the musical premiered at the Raymond Theater in Vienna, Austria on October 4th, 1997, uh, and it closed on January 15th, 2000. Wow. So it, was, it did well. It was there nice. for a long time. Uh, in 1998, it won the Image Award for Best Musical, Best Score, and Best Book. Great. Um, then the show had its Germany premiere in Stuttgart, Germany on March 31st in 2000 at the Apollo Theater. Where Roman Polanski directed it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. I think he may have also directed the Vienna one. Okay. Um, I think he did like both he directed both of the initial ones, but I, I could be wrong on that. That's cool. Um and then this production lasted three years mm-hmm. and closed august fifteenth, two thousand three. So it did really well in Europe. Yeah. Like in, in its initial And it run. continues to do so. Yeah, really That's well. Cool. Um, the show began eyeing Broadway in 1998 with Roman Polanski in mind to be the director. Um, and then Jim Steinman was responsible for translating the book to English. Wait. And correct
1: me if I'm wrong right. here. Isn't Roman Polanski not allowed to come back to the United States? I'm getting to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That's how this devolves. I'm going to shut my mouth.
2: (laughs) That is how this devolves. Wow.
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm so, I'm, I, you win. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to, I'm going to
2: lay down and give you the win here. Uh, (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Um, right. So, uh, Jim, Jim Steinman was responsible for translating the book to English for its premiere. Um. But because of Polanski's unwillingness to surrender to the American authorities, <laughs> because of his—it's uh, not Ugh. child abuse allegations, but it's like it's child molestation, Yeah, yeah. But because he—the uh, th- the proper term is like sex with a, a minor. Okay. Um, the those allegations were brought up against him. He was unable to come to New York to direct it. Um, this postponed the opening of the show uh, until Halloween. <laughs> 2000. Um, and they said, like, if the show was unable to move forward with Polanski as a director, um, then it would give them time to find another director. Okay. So initially, they wanted Roman to come over. And then uh, they were like, he's like, I, if I go there, I'm going to jail because of what happened. <laughs> so he's like, not allowed in America. Oh. Yeah.
0: Yep. Ugh. Yep.
2: Yep. Ugh. You know, just a small little hiccup. Just, just a, a little infraction. Just a little one. hmm uh. The show was again postponed to uh, a fall 2001 opening with Steinman claiming that he would be directing it, though he had never directed before. <laughs>
1: But, but it's okay, because I've watched Roman do it a couple of times Have now.
2: Time. <laughs> oh, my
0: gosh. Which
2: I'm literally about to tell you a quote, which basically <laughs> says that Steinman asserted in interviews that half the show in Vienna, I had talked to Polanski into doing, and, it, and did it behind his back a lot. He's a great guy, but he had a totally different vision. Oh, my God. Unquote. A vision that worked, apparently. Yeah, because it did. It it did. It did really well. It was uh, while it was over there, it was like a sold out run. Wow. <laughs> oh dear. Indeed. As the date approached, Steinman took on a co director in John Cared. Okay. Uh, and they brought on David Ives to help them with the comic elements of the book. Okay. So that's why all three of them get credit for writing the book. Now, nice. Okay. The fear was that the Austrian script wouldn't appeal to Broadway critics and audiences. But again, it's like, in some they ways, just, I get that. They think so
1: little of audiences here, though.
2: There, it, well, it's part. It's partly no, that. I'm talking but then
1: about the producers here in America. No, they think so little no, of us. No, I totally agree with you.
2: <laughs> I, I think it's partly that, and I think also there are sometimes some jokes that don't necessarily translate. So, like, well, sure, uh, like for example. You know, like Hamilton, mm-hmm. uh, I had a yogi who she took a group and a bunch of the people who came with her were from England and they didn't necessarily love King George. Okay. <laughs> well, neither did we. Right. <laughs> Which we made very clear in the musical. But, like, they didn't think he was as funny as, like, right. we think his part. Well, he's, like, so funny. Well, also probably
1: because they were stuck with him while he was his craziest. Yeah. 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 Poor... Yep people
2: sorry Sorry. we love you so much hey that's history yeah
1: i mean that's history it happened it happened the thing that we might not like it But it but it happened
2: signing on as producers were sonenberg and the producing team of elizabeth williams and anita waxman then known for the critically acclaimed revival of the music man so what they wanted was they wanted this show to have like a mel brooks comedic feel so mm-hmm. when I was reading it yeah I like the young Frankenstein exactly like that's what I thought in my head I was like they're trying which I mean let's be real young Frankenstein was also a flap on Broadway yes it was but it wasn't a flop movie it okay I'm gonna open the movie. Twizzlers
1: and I'm gonna have one while you because this is a really good story <laughs> yeah go ahead thank
2: you they were thinking it would be a Wagnerian musical oh Wagnerian flat- like Wagner oh Okay. Very epic.
1: Um, yeah. The Ring Cycle is like three operas put into yes. one. Like it's very, yeah.
2: Okay. Very elaborate,
1: very heavy. Wagner. Very musical. German. Yeah. Yeah.
2: With lots of humor. Um, a lot of it is pure Mel Brooks, and a lot of it is Anne Rice. Because <laughs> it's vampires.
1: You yeah. Know? There you go.
2: Um, and to the uh, by invitation only audience as a musical for people who think musicals suck. <laughs> was met met with uh, mixed reviews, so this is one of the tryouts that they're talking about here in this uh, piece from uh, Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Potential investors and producers seemed to love the score but felt the new book, with its mix of body humor and eroticism, needed fine-tuning. Unfortunately, Steinman's creative disagreements with his producing team, at one point telling the press, I can't tell you how many things are the opposite of what I want, but I am a part of the team. You don't say that stuff to the press. No. Oh, my goodness. Although, in Kelly, they were saying all the things to the press. I was just going to say, haven't you learned anything from Kelly? They were like, press, come in and watch us devolve. You can have a front row seat to our big fights. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Holy geez. Uh. Uh, And their seeming inability to raise the investment money in time for a now rather unrealistic fall opening. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um. This led to tense situations backstage. No kidding. No. Who would have thought? (laughs) Finally, Waxman and Williams were ousted from the production, with Sonnenberg assuming day-to-day responsibilities as the lead producer, a strategic move viewed by many as a power grab on Steinman's part. Uh, As one source put it, he has the final say on everything. (laughs) In order to calm producers' fears about all the production trouble the show had had, on its way to Broadway the team decided they needed a juggernaut to bring some much needed attraction to av- investors okay after looking at a bunch of different possibilities on who would play count crolock uh sorry count von crolock and some of these possibilities i'm oh my god i can't wait david bowie <laughs>
0: which yeah oh yeah he would have been
2: so good. Yeah, I think so too. Absolutely, they should have that and then bring
1: in Iman to play Sarah.
2: <laughs> Iman is his this. wife. No, I, I totally know. She's gorgeous, yeah. but I'm like she. <laughs> I'm I mean, like, would that, right that role. But David Bowie would have oh, done so good. Yeah, that would have been real good. Oh. That, but that was like the only good idea. What else of, did they say? John Travolta. <laughs> Richard Gere and Placido Domingo. Really? Yeah. You know
1: what? I'm going to say yes to Placido Domingo. I love him, first of all. He's one of my very favorite opera singers, but he's funny. Have you ever seen him in a comedic opera? No. He's funny.
2: Okay, so maybe he could have done it. I think he
1: could have done it. I'm still
2: most excited about David Bowie. Oh, my gosh. Like, I really wish that would have happened. I mean, my gut. Like, when you said it, I was like, oh, yes. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) That was the best idea they'd had. Yeah. Quite honestly. I'm going to get another Twizzler. Okay. But guess who they finally settled on? (laughs) Who? Guess. (laughs) Is it just
1: a Broadway person or is it like a, an actual like juggernaut like a, they were it's looking? It's a Broadway
2: person but he's like I, you you you, you mm. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You, you yeah there's so many possibilities. Okay wait, so wait when what, what was the year was this? 98? No no it actually ended up happening in 2002. Well, who was big?
1: Brian Darcy James?
2: No so you're going to want to go way older. Oh you're gonna want to go classic. <laughs> oh, think it has the sound. John of, Cullum. It has this musical has a sound sort of like Andrew Lloyd Webber's. M- uh,
1: Michael Ball. Well, oh wait, Michael. The, oh my God, right.
2: <laughs> Michael, it's coming. <laughs> <going>. <laughs> I'll put you out of your misery. Thank you. Michael Crawford. Crawford! Oh my gosh. <laughs>
1: That's because Michael Ball did the other uh, aspects of love, did the other Angela oh, Reber show that okay. I was thinking, oh can we do that again so that I don't <laughs> sound like such an idiot? <laughs> we don't have to. Michael Crawford. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I can see that.
2: Yeah. Well, Michael Crawford He wanted some assurances for taking on uh, a possibly a three year role. Oh my gosh. His requests were that <laughs> blue be-
1: Ms in the dressing room.
2: <laughs> oh, if only! <laughs> oh, please tell me I can't wait. His requests were that he would be given a retirement package of twenty million dollars per year. Shut up! Just while the show was running. Yeah. Okay. So twenty million. So that's about one hundred and eighty thousand dollars per week. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh-huh. I'm sorry, like, who has the gall to ask for something like that? And it was his
2: reason for saying that because he thought, I'll be out of the market for three years? Well, if it's it's a retirement package, though, right? So that sounds like he he would be done acting after he was finished the show. Yeah, well... Yeah. If I had $20 million, I'd quit acting too, right? now. Well, it's
1: not like I'm acting right now, but maybe I am a little. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I know. It's going to happen, buddy. One of these feel days. It in my bones. Thank you. <laughs> um, He also wanted to have complete control of his character mm-hmm. and first refusal on the role if it played in London or LA. He also. He also wanted to be offered the role if a film version was made, having recently lost the film role of The Phantom to the initial star, Antonio Banderas, who was later replaced by Gerard Butler. Man,
1: you gotta love his tenacity. It's a lot. And I guess in this business, too, you do have to ask for what you want, because yeah. they're certainly not going to give it to you. No, they're not.
2: <laughs> they're not. Of the four points uh, that he, he won, too, so he got creative control and first refusal. okay. Um, he
1: got creative control, c- creative control of his character, but still, like even well, that is probably smart though because okay. the guy didn't know what he was doing as far as directing wise. diamond
2: right? No, a hundred percent. And he done- and those were the two cheapest options. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine if they were like, you can't have creative control, but we'll give you the twenty million dollars? Yeah, no. <laughs>
2: That's, that, no. would, that would be opposite world. Yeah, that would be because who's going to pay for that ticket? Right. That ticket's going to be astronomical. Oh, my gosh.
1: So he just got those two options. Everything else was negotiated out.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. It said the uh, one c- control and first refusal eschewing the original salary after initial press reports caused an outcry over his massive payday. <laughs> No kidding.
1: Okay, this is kind of where social media steps in, and I'm like, all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. For a much
2: slimmer 30000 a week. So that's still a lot of money. And
1: just to put this into perspective... But, like,
2: it's not the 180000 a week he was asking for.
1: When I was doing a chorus job in a production contract national tour, mm-hmm. the chorus makes... A minimum mm-hmm. of, I think it was, at the time, I know it's been negotiated now since then, but, like, at the time, I think it was just over $1,800 a week.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So to put that into perspective, yes, you might be the star of the show, but come on. Yeah. Like, some people, only, they only have 30000 a
2: year. Yeah!
1: Like, I'm kind of in that boat. Yeah. I make slightly more than what he made per week yeah. in a flop show on Broadway. Yeah! <laughs> oh my god! I know. It kind of makes me want to just go to sleep and not wake
2: up. <laughs> I know. No, I know.
1: Oh man.
2: <sighs> While Steinman uh, was still ebullient over Crawford's casting, uh, he defended the original figure by saying Crawford would be worthy every cent we can pay him. A more sensible Crawford claimed the initial reports of $180,000 salary were quote-unquote ridiculous (laughs) and a quote-unquote piece of fantasy journalism from my home country, adding that anyone who knows how many people you can fit in a theater knows that you don't do Broadway to make money. There you go. The possibility of the film role, meanwhile, was never mentioned again. Michael was very much involved in creating his role and making a point of it being different from Phantom. They wanted this show to resemble a more comedic tone, like I said before, in the style of Mel Brooks. Phantom and Phantom of the Opera is not a comedic role. Nope. Um, If you all didn't know, he was the original Phantom. Just (laughs) P.S. That's why, because you know that you guys know Pamela was in the (laughs) national tour, right? I don't know if you know. I
1: don't know if you knew this or not, but... (laughs)
2: And so, like, that's it's why... has been four and a half
1: years on the national tour <laughs> of Phantom of the Opera. And
2: so, that's why I thought she would get that it was Michael Crawford.
1: And I only said Michael Ball, because I was... <laughs> you know what? Stop it. <laughs> you
2: already won. But I was like, I want, I want to explain, because I'm like, people are going to be like, why do you think she would get that? Like, that doesn't make sense, and she would just know. But then I was like, but this is why I thought that maybe. Okay, so... Moving on, having postponed the show, the team sought to bring in additional producers who could help get the show in on time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so finally, USA O-Star Theatricals, headed by Barry Diller and Bill Haber, uh, who did the revival of Noises Off, Bob Boyett, who produced the revival of Hedda Gabler, um, and Lawrence Horowitz, who was the producer of Electra and Ain't It Nothing But the Blues, all signed on. A creative team was also finally being assembled, including set designer David Gallo. A cast also rapidly shaped up around Crawford with the input of the new director and choreographer and a fresh set of auditions, and I'll tell you who those people are uh, super soon. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited about these two. So, the then ingenues who played the leads were Mandy Gonzalez. <laughs> Uh, and so Mandy was the original Nina mm-hmm. in In the Heights and Max von Essen. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. Real good.
1: Like that's his jam, man. Those <laughs> Gothic musicals. Those are his jams. He's,
2: I love Max von <laughs> Me Essen. Me too. He's so great. <laughs> <sighs> it's, a, it's a good, mm-hmm. good people. <laughs> um, and so they played Alfred and Sarah. Uh, and then Renee I'm sorry, Renee, I'm gonna butcher your last name. Albur Ob, mm Auberjoine. Yes. <laughs> Something like
1: that. Yes. He did he was in Star Trek. The oh, I can't remember oh. what his oh. um I can't remember what his character's name was. Ar- 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 Buj- Anyways, it's hard to say. Yeah. But I know what you're talking about.
2: Great, okay. So it was after a similar prolonged negotiations to Crawford's. Oh um, and he, so he was playing Professor, ugh, the last name I can never pronounce. Right? <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's all right. Any, anyway, he was playing the professor. <laughs> That's the part he was playing. Nice. Uh, a, bra- a broncius. And then Ron Orbach, um, who was late late to being cast because he was doing the out-of-town run of the producers. <laughs> and he was um, Chagall. Uh, Leah Hawking was Magda. This is all happening, right? And then one more bad thing happens. Oh, man. 9 11. Oh. That just causes, you know, more delays because of all the safety issues. Yeah. Uh, so the game plan changed in a major league fashion with most of the show's major creative team, including co director Cared, based in London. A myriad of logistical delays were caused by mass cancellation of flights, among mm-hmm. other variables. Realizing there was no way to open before the Tony cut off as planned, and it later emerged unable to raise his share of the investment on time, Sonberg publicly announced the postponement of the show's opening to October 24th. After a prolonged period of development, uh, 61 previews in total, with two of the originally set opening dates missed, the English version of Dance of the Vampires opened on Broadway on December 9th, 2002. All right. And it was at the Minskoff Theater. OK, so that's where that's where it played. That's where Lion King is right now, right? Yes, that's where Lion King is right now. And that was also where I saw Fiddler on the Roof for the first time back when it was Harvey Fierstein was. In oh, it. my god. And Tova Feldschuh. Yes. OK, so preview started October 18th, 2002, mm-hmm. officially opened on December 9th, 2002. And on January 25th, 2003, after 56 performances, Dance of the Vampires closed. Oh, man. The show cost $12 million and lost all $12 million. (laughs) But so here was the problem is like running costs were $600,000 a week. And the show was just making $500,000 a week. Oh, man. So it was working at a terrible loss like every single week. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the show had a 10th anniversary concert in 2007 in Vienna at the Raymond Theater. Yeah. Where it had first opened. And then the most recent European revivals are 2014 in Paris. And then in 2016, it was in four places. Helsinki, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Berlin. Cool. Yeah. So Europe, they super love Dance of the Vampires. They think it's baller. Maybe we should try again. It's been 15 years. A- well, do I we mean, need we wouldn't to? Yes.
1: I I think we should try every show we've done on these on these episodes again. Because they can learn from their mistakes. They should just bring us in as
2: <laughs> I I would do that me too and that would be a that super, would be so that would be awesome. the most fun job all right i'm gonna put
1: this out into the universe
2: Ooh, that'd be a fun job
1: bring us in we are really good at looking at the big picture and telling you what you're doing wrong
2: <laughs> and also like we really love theater so oh, you know but, we'll and we want you kindness. to succeed that's what we want
1: totally and we do speak with kindness just maybe not me today <laughs> But I still love you. She does. That would be
2: really cool. That would be a super fun job. I I would do that.
1: I bet they have people like that. But do they have theater people like that, or I are know. they only the money people? Yeah. I have a feeling that they only have like money people doing that kind of work, and yeah. not like people that have their their you know a leg in yeah on the theater world. Yeah. Because listen, Fifty percent of show business is the show. Let us not forget. <laughs> not forget let us not forget (sighs) pardon me your teeth are in my neck (laughs) (laughs)
2: love that title it's so good (laughs) so that's that's Dance of the Vampires it's like I said if you really want to see it it's um, if you want to see the movie you can watch it on YouTube Um, I had one more thing about this and now I can't remember oh no but thanks for listening guys
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. This was a very long episode, so thank you for sticking it yeah. with us. And but, let us know who you think won. Although I think it stands with the vampires. <laughs> but let me know. All right, guys. You know what to do. Go you to do. Theater Geeks Anonymous, TGABway, TGABway at Broadway, or oh my At goodness. gmail.com. At gmail.com. Wow. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Yep. Rate, review, subscribe, mm-hmm. like, share, follow, all the things. All the things. Puddles licking
2: the couch. Stop it. Gross. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Happy
0: Halloween. 18 plus.